Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. We're so glad you're here. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. Today, I have a really special guest on the podcast. When I was a preteen, my immunologist here in New York suggested that I go down to the National Institutes of Health to take part in a research study. This was a time in my life when I wanted as much normalcy as possible. I didn't want to be seen as a guinea pig, and I wanted to be a preteen. But when I was 27, I was faced with a situation where it was clear that going down to the NIH was the thing to do in order to figure out the proper next steps for my health. That's where I met Dr. Alexandra Freeman. I immediately recognized that she was warm and truly cared about her patients. She didn't look at me like a specimen as I had anticipated. I knew she'd be a crucial part of my health team. So here we are over six years later, and I don't remember my life without her. So welcome, Dr. Alexandra Freeman. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today, Barbara. Absolutely. I'm so happy to have you. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at the NIH. Okay. So my training is in pediatric infectious diseases. I have an MD. Um, but when I finished my training in that, I wanted to focus on clinical research, individuals who had um, immune compromise, and be in the D.C. area. So that's basically how I ended up in NIH. So here, I focus on adults and children who have primary immune deficiencies. So these are immune deficiencies that um, problems with the immune system that make people susceptible to infections and ones that people are born with. And how did you even decide to get into the medical field? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I was not one of these people that was born knowing exactly what I want to do. So um, I always liked science. You know, growing up, I kind of did best in the science and uh, math fields. And I went to a kind of a small liberal arts college uh, where I, I was a biology major. But when I was doing that, I was focused on a couple different things. I thought about either doing something in biology kind of or ecology or being a science teacher or, you know, eventually I came around to the idea of medicine. I'd always liked medical things. I thought about being a veterinarian when I was little. But I realized I like science and I like teaching people. And medicine was a really good way to kind of to combine those two interests of mine. So more and more, I was drawn to the medical field. I spent some time in college working at, you know, volunteering at a local hospital, too. So that helped out in terms of that. And then what field of medicine took me a while. Because initially, I wanted to do family practice. And you know, now in a lot of ways, I kind of feel that way. You know, I always like continuity of care and you have that with family practice. But in the field I'm in, you know, I do have continuity and I see all different age groups and I take care of some families. So um, I kind of feel like I've come around to my initial plan of medicine of being more kind of family practice oriented. That's interesting. Never really thought of it that way. But I know you do treat people of all ages and you have patients who then bring in kids. So yeah, sounds like family practice. Yeah. And then so. How did you get into the infectious disease side of things? That was really because, well, a couple of different things. One was when I was a pediatric resident, the people I identified with most, the people I liked the most to work with were the infectious disease doctors. So those are the, the doctors that I just clicked with. But also in infectious diseases, you're involved with all the different types of patients in the hospital. 
So it's not, it's not one organ, you know, you're involved with everything. So you're seeing the pulmonary patients and the cardiology ones and the, you know, the babies and the older people, you know, I, I just think it was way to span all the different fields. Um, I'm also not very procedure oriented and this is more of a thinking specialty. You know, it's more the, we think and we work as a team. It's more of that approach, which was just a better fit for me. I love that. And listeners can check out the first episode of the podcast where you can hear a bit of my story, which includes my first visit down to the NIH and when I fell in love with you and your team. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's it like to work with individuals with such rare cases like me? It's been a really good experience for me. I initially got into the field when I initially came to NIH. It was actually uh, working with kids, mostly with HIV. So I, I always liked people that had problems with their immune system that were susceptible to infections. And HIV was another way to see kind of people over time and have a continuity of care. Uh, you know, pretty soon after I got to NIH, you know, pediatric HIV in this country was doing better. And, you know, and the program here was actually closing. And I had done some work with primary immune deficiency at NIH so when I was a fellow in Chicago. So for me, it was a really good way to transition um, my focus into that field. I must say, when I started at NIH, you know, I had never seen anyone with a hyper IG syndrome. You know, that was not something that I had much experience with, but I had seen people with other primary immune deficiencies a fair amount when I was a fellow. And, you know, I feel like it's a real privilege taking care of people with this just because we really get to know people. And I've always kind of, you know, as I was saying, with my initial interest in family practice, that was really to be kind of, you know, more part of the family unit, more, you know, really kind of get to know the patients, get to know. It's almost like being part of a community. And that's what I feel like in the, you know, with this one disease, it's really, there is kind of a community feel to it. And there is a kind of a privilege being part of the medical team and the really the lives of people. And you know, and I try my best to make a difference. I mean, it's not easy, boys. You know, there's a lot of kind of hard decisions. Things don't always go as I want. You know, you want to have these easy solutions to problems and, you know, just kind of the nature of working at NIH. You know, we end up seeing a lot of people where the easy solutions didn't work out. So it's very humbling. There's no room for egos here at all. But, you know, I just feel like it's a very special experience for me. Well, and I think it's a really special place and the work that you do is incredible. And I think what's so cool and different from most doctors that most people see is that, and I hate saying this, but you guys are so invested in your patients. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have doctors here in New York that you know that are phenomenal, but there's something really special about the amount of time and care that you put into your patients is that just how the NIH is? Is that your team? Like, how is that decided on? I mean, is it because it's government funded? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a combination of everything. You know, first, working at NIH, I think it is a really special place. I think the lack of, you know, there's not a business side to it, really. I mean, I guess everything has a business side. But, you know, we are insurance company free, which is great. It makes medicine much more pure. We don't have to worry about those type of things. You know, we don't have to think, you know, when we're thinking about a, you know, a type of therapy, we don't have to say, okay, I need to spend a few hours now fighting for this. Um, so that makes it better. I think people are really happy to work here. From the moment you walk in the door here, people tend to be friendlier. Oh, no question. You know, I used to spend my time kind of going back and forth. I was an attending here, attending physician here, as well as another hospital. 
And you just feel the difference, you know, that this is an extremely patient focused place as all medicine should be. And I think for a lot of hospitals that are dealing with the financial considerations, you know, it's just much as they want to be totally patient oriented, it's really, really hard for them. So I think that's part of it. And then I just think I have a really special team here. You know, I have a, um, you know, the nurse and the nurse practitioner I work with. I mean, they are just extremely patient focused as well. And we all get along well and we just have a lot of fun that together. So I think that is really helpful for, you know, the whole atmosphere. Absolutely. So when you're talking to a patient or a patient's parents for the first time, what's that conversation like? How are you navigating what you discuss with them as they're coming to you, like you said, as a potential last resort? I mean, it's always hard when we have to say, okay, this is the disease that you have, if we know what it is. I mean, you know, I I see people, I kind of have two main fields at NIH. One is taking care of people with hyper IgE syndromes, where often we actually do know the actual diagnosis. But then I take care of a lot of people where we don't know the diagnosis yet. And, uh, you know, we're searching for that. It's always kind of interesting because a lot of people, when you actually can put a name to it, that can be helpful in some ways, you know, even if it's a diagnosis you don't want, because then you know how to focus your time and energy. And for some people, this isn't everybody, but for some people, it's actually, you know, a little bit of relief to know, okay, well, people are at least working on this. And so I try to stress that aspect of it, at least some, when I don't have a perfect answer, you know, that, okay, well, this is what we think is going on. And, you know, maybe we don't have the answer right now, but it's something we're going to work on. I mean, I know for the first few years I was here, for instance, we didn't understand the genetics of the diseases. We didn't understand really why things happen at all. Um, But, you know, I think our group is pretty good at kind of sticking with people and saying, okay, you know, but we're going to keep trying to get an answer. So, you know, I do try to focus on that, to try to focus on, you know, that medicine and science are really slow often, you know, in figuring things out. But at least we have a team here that's committed to helping and trying. But it is hard. You know, we don't always have, you know, sometimes the news is just frankly bad with specific diagnoses. And, you know, sometimes there isn't an easy solution. What percentage of your patients have Job syndrome? That's a good question. I would say probably a third to a half. And can you give a little overview on what Job syndrome is? Sure. So Job syndrome is a primary immune deficiency, which means that it's a genetic problem that people have since the time they're born that makes them more susceptible to infections. And in this case, the types of infections are usually like skin infections, like staph. Uh, boils, as well as pneumonia, science infections, ear infections. Um, People often have eczema. And then there's just kind of other things that make this disease a little bit different than a lot of the other problems in the immune system. So where you see a fair amount of bone problems like scoliosis and fractures and um, tooth, like dental problems, blood vessel problems, it really affects kind of all the different aspects of the body, which makes it a challenge both in terms of taking care of people, but also in terms of our research and try to understand it really well. Well, and it's really interesting because every patient is different, obviously, and Mm -hmm. you get to see all different types of stories and some things come together. Like I remember recently saying to your team, you know, my sleep hasn't been so good. Is this something that you guys have been observing? And the nurse practitioner, Amanda, was saying, oh, yeah, we've been hearing a lot of this. We're starting to dig into it further. So it's really cool 
that you're able to find these threads amongst your patients. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that makes NIH really, really special is because for this is a really rare disease, you know, probably just a teeny bit more common than one in a million. So for most hospitals, big academic hospitals will only ever see a couple people with this probably. So it's really hard to have the expertise unless you can really get a big group of patients together. And that's when you can start seeing the patterns that we've been able to see over the years. And I think the reason why, you know, that is more feasible with NIH is that, you know, we are able to pay for people to fly here from within the United States. You know, we can pay for travel. We can house people here for free. You know, I mean, we make it a much more accessible type of place to get care so that we can really study these rare diseases because otherwise it's just not feasible for people or only feasible for for people that really have a fair amount more of uh, resources. Yeah, so a lot of the kind of the manifestations of this disease were really figured out by, you know, the patients also talking to each other. So, you know, before my time, they realized that before I worked here, that, for instance, the baby teeth don't fall out for most people with this. So, and that was really because, you know, they sent two people down to the dental clinic and they're both sitting there and thinking, oh, that's funny, my baby teeth didn't fall out, my baby teeth didn't fall out, and this other people, you know, so I think it's, you know, a lot of these observations are because we're seeing multiple people with the same diagnosis, and, you know, and then our patients are helping us to, like, put this all together. Right. Yep, my baby teeth didn't fall out, that's for sure. (laughs) Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Lola. Using natural products became a priority for me a few years ago, so I was thrilled when I discovered Lola. I'm super conscious of using natural products on my face, my body, and my hair, so why not be equally as conscious about the feminine care products I use? Unlike most major brands, Lola's products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics, or dyes, so I can feel confident that I'm using the safest products possible every month. Plus, with my Lola subscription, the products get delivered right to my door exactly when I need them. Lola is founded by women for women, and they donate feminine care products to homeless shelters with each purchase. For 40% off all subscriptions, visit mylola.com and enter visible at the discount code when you place your first order. Again, that's mylola.com and enter visible as the discount code. In episode 19, we interviewed Jan Weiss, who is the mother of Lucy, as you know, a patient of yours. What was it like when the Discovery Channel decided to feature you and your team and Lucy in the show First in Human? What was that like? Yeah, that was that was a really interesting experience. I think, you know, for Lucy, it was probably the easiest. I mean, Lucy was immediately friends with all the camera people and was super comfortable. I remember Jan talking about that, just saying she loved being in front of the camera. She loved it. And she was just hilarious with them. I mean, it was so funny. You know, I think for them, at least for me, I mean, not everybody here, but you know, I was self-conscious and it took me a little bit of time to get used to them. You know, they were very um, considerate and they became extremely kind of interested and engaged in both the patients, but also kind of the science behind it. Hmm. And it almost became like a member of our medical team. I mean, it's just, you know, everyone has their ways of dealing with hard situations. And I'm one of these people that, you know, I'm, I'm really into having a medical team and, you know, I'll run things by, you know, the other doctors that are around here, the nurses, the nurse practitioners, you know, trying to anyone. Well, what do you think? Do you think, you know, should we do, you know, path A, path B, path C? 
So you know, it's funny because they would often be with me when I was having these kind of stressful moments of like, okay, what are we going to do? You know, and maybe I'd be talking to Amanda or Dirk or someone and being like, okay, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should do that. And, you know, the camera guy sitting there, I'm like, okay, fine. Just throw in your opinion. <laughs> that's incredible. So, you know, I mean, I just, I, that's kind of like more my style is I'm just kind of a, uh, you know, I'm one of these people that just talks out loud and I was like, okay, maybe I'm doing this a little bit to a fault. Um, um, it was a really interesting experience for me. I'll just say one funny story about Lucy was, yeah, as I said before, you know, my days are hectic. They're not predictable. And, um, you know, that's not always what, you know, camera people want. They would want to be like, okay, Alexandra, what time are you going to go see her? And what are you going to do this? I'm like, I don't, you know, for the inpatients, I'm like, you know, I'll see her when I have five minutes of time, you know, (laughs) Like, I don't plan ahead really all that well. So often, you know, times that they film me, I mean, there was times that we had set up kind of in the beginning, middle and end, but other times was just if I happened to walk into the room and the camera person was there. So one time I walked in the room to see Lucy and um, the camera people happened to be there. So, you know, I said hi to her, but, you know, they weren't, I didn't have a little microphone or whatever. You know, I wasn't prepared to be filmed. So the camera person said to me, actually, can you just step out and walk in again? Huh. So, you know, most of it was not like that. But, you know, they were like, just just come in again because we didn't have a microphone on you because we didn't expect to see you. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, fine. So I like step back out and they put a microphone. So I come back in the room. I'm like, hey, Lucy. So I'm feeling super self-conscious, you know, because I'm like doing yeah, a replay. all of a sudden. And Lucy was just hilarious. I mean, that was the type of thing she was so good at. She was like, Oh my gosh, Dr. Freeman, it is so good to see you <laughs> today. <laughs> I just like burst out laughing. So, oh, she's <laughs> she so cute. Like a natural little actress and uh, was super comfortable. Oh my you God, know, I love it. Interesting thing about Discovery was, you know, Jim Parsons was the, um, the narrator of the show and meeting. And so I got to meet him just at one point. He came by to talk to all of us. And he could not have been, you know, he just asked such good questions, like insightful questions, was so interested to hear kind of how we go about our day, you know, just, you know, really kind of engaged with the whole process. So that was kind of a cool experience as well. I love that. She really is such a ham. Yeah, she's really funny. So did you watch the show when it aired last summer? Yes, I did. I had seen little bits of it beforehand. You know, they had had um, kind of a pre-screening for some of us that were involved with it for episode one. There was multiple times I saw episode one. I'm not in episode one. And it was funny because that's all I had seen. And they kept inviting me to all these events to see episode one. And I'm like, are they just trying to be nice to me? You know, because I was cut from this. But um, I did watch it. You know, I've watched it. I think I've seen it twice. I want to see the whole thing. I want to see it a third time. Because I, I mean, Lucy luckily is doing quite well now, as people know. But you know, I mean, the, it was a very stressful period. Some of those times where they filmed her, and what, and then just watching the other people in it, um, and knowing how stressful it would be for their medical teams. You know, I think every single time I've watched it, I've had, I've been like mildly nauseous and had a stomach ache throughout the entire thing. So it's just, it's hard. I mean, it's sad and it's stressful and it's like, you know, that's a little bit how life is working at NIH. You know, there's a lot of stressful, sad moments, but it was like they combined all that into a few hours. (laughs) So it was just so intense. Whereas normally, you know, we get, 
you know, like happy couple hours and then a stressful half hour. You know, I mean, it was just like the compressing it made it hard for me to watch. But I thought they did a really great job of it. Yeah, I mean, not knowing Lucy's story prior, I thought they did a really great job as sad and scary as it was to watch. And obviously great to know that Lucy's doing significantly better since. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the stress and sadness side of your job. What's the most rewarding part of it? When people have come in really sick or had all these things going on. And then, you know, when we actually get people better, it's like, you know, when we're having kind of a rough week or whatever, you know, we, I at least, and I think other members of our group, you know, we focus on kind of our, our big successes. So, you know, this morning I was sending out to my nurse practitioner pictures. It was a kid that we had met about nine months ago who came to us from another country quite sick. And we were supposed to do a bone marrow transplant and get him better and get him through it. And we had a kind of a limited amount of time. And, you know, and we did it. Like, you know, he came in, somehow got all these things better and him tuned up and then through a bone marrow transplant. Now he's thriving. So I'm sending pictures of like, before kind of what the lungs look like and look at it now yesterday like it looks so amazing you know so things like that you know are just so rewarding it's a smaller subset of what i do but i do take care of some patients from other countries where there's a lot less medical resources and i think that's when i actually am able to help those children it's more for me it's more children but um you know i think that is just one of the most rewarding things i do are there any commonly held misconceptions about rare diseases I mean, I think any disease has misconceptions. You know, I think probably for, for Job syndrome specifically, I think there's kind of a misconception of, you know, we know that people with this disease you know, have significant medical concerns, but I, I think sometimes the general community or, you know, and kind of practitioners around the world don't realize just how well so many of our patients are doing, you know, that we do have many patients who are thriving and are getting great educational degrees and thriving at their occupations. You know, I I think sometimes people, they've seen kind of a more um, sick patient or, you know, worse outcome, and they don't realize like a lot of our patients are really, you know, this is an, this is part of them, but it's not what's defining them. And they're really going about their lives just with this as one of the considerations of what makes them who they are. I love that. Not defined by it. So have you seen advancements made in the research about rare diseases since your time at the NIH? Uh, Yeah. From a genetic standpoint, there's been a huge, huge explosion of knowledge. Although that doesn't always, you know, translate into um, advancements in the care we provide or every, or, you know, our day-to-day lives. It just really adds to the knowledge, and then we can focus more on what's making a disease, you know, happen and can lead then to more ideas about therapy. So that's one thing. I mean, you know, it used to be we'd say, okay, well, maybe, you know, what could could cause, you know, staph infections or whatever? Why don't we look at such and such gene? Whereas now, you know, for relatively inexpensive ways, you know, we can do kind of sequencing of all of the major genes in the body, kind of the big components of those genes in the body, really within a couple months and have all of this information and make diagnoses and then kind of focus on that pathway, you know, the immune system or whatever part of the body it is uh, to try to understand things. The other thing is, I mean, there's just been, I think, in part because we know some of these pathways, you know, there's all of these new type of therapeutic approaches. 
I mean, I think cancer care, which I'm not involved with, is, you know, it has this huge explosion of kind of manipulating the immune system to, you know, to attack tumors. And in our field, also, there's kind of all these new ways to manipulate the immune system to try to improve the disease process. When you think about it less in terms of, okay, well, you know, let me just put out these little fires, but really kind of trying to manipulate the immune system. I mean, that's all changed a ton in the last few years. That's really cool. So is there a way to define a success story? Have you felt like there's been a success story with certain patients or with certain aspects of someone's condition? You know, one thing that's been huge for Job syndrome is just the earlier diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know, I think now that we, you know, so in 2007, we figured out the gene was set free. And now, especially when people have children with a disease, you know, we can diagnose those children within the first couple of weeks of life. And those children's lives are dramatically different than their parents. We have, you know, several kids that we follow that were diagnosed, you know, right around birth who are just not having the skin problems and the lung problems and everything that their parents had. So that's been really kind of remarkable for us. I mean, it's really changed the whole disease pathway for um, this disease. I think, you know, for Job syndrome, I mean, there's still a bunch of unknowns kind of There's a a bunch of things we're still struggling with, like exactly what is the role for transplant? You know, if I'm seeing a kid that's really doing worse than everybody else, you know, I think about, okay, well, let's think about bone marrow transplant. But, you know, for this disease that kind of affects so many different parts of the body, you know, we do have to take a step back and be like, okay, what exactly is bone marrow transplant going to fix? You know, which we don't really have the answer to yet. So I think there's still a lot of things we're struggling with, you know, just kind of the earlier diagnosis has been really big for people kind of our monitoring of different complications, like right after I started. So about 13 years ago, we had someone who had a heart attack and that led us to realize, you know, luckily he did fine in the end, but it made us realize, for instance, oh, well, these blood vessels had problems. And then we started screening everyone for that, trying to prevent future problems. And I think that has been really helpful for us as well. I think, uh, um, but we're all hoping in this field that we can come up with a better overall solution. And that's what we haven't quite done yet. So Right. So what can people who don't have a rare disease do to support patients who do? I think one of the main things is that, you know, as we said before, that, you know, this is just one aspect of someone. You know, everyone has little things that are, okay, well, this is what's a little different about me. And this is what's a little bit different about the other person. So I think, um, you know, making sure that, their peers or their colleagues are not thinking them, you know, of those people as just, okay, well, this is the one who has such and such um, is important. Um, You know, I do think, though, that for people with chronic disease or rare diseases, you know, it is important to understand that there are going to be times where people aren't feeling well. Um, You know, there's times when, you know, all the patients reach out to us and they're like, you know, I just... I'm trying to get this work project done or this school project done. And, you know, I just am having a bad week. I mean, people do feel more tired. People do feel, you know, there are just days where you can't get things done and having a little bit of leniency and understanding that is really important. So I feel like we're always writing letters to different people, you know, to try to give a little bit of a leniency for some of our patients. But for the most part, just treating people like you would treat anyone else, you know? Whether or not they have an illness. Yeah. I think for each one of our patients, how much they want the world to know that they have something is really varies from person to person. Oh, for sure. I mean, look at me. 
no one knew for 27 years of my life until I came down to you guys and said, hmm, I should probably tell my best friends I'm going down to Maryland and things are getting a little serious here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had people with significant others who don't want anyone to know for a long time or, you know, I mean, I, I think it's it's a really personal decision when you're going to kind of decide that this is something that you want, you know, the world or whatever to know about. Yeah. And some people are very public about it. I mean, I remember one of your patients reached out to me years ago and she was so confident in who she was and her health and I couldn't handle it. It was too much for me. She was so like, this is a, you know, so matter of fact, and the confidence level was something I couldn't relate to as it related to my health that I really backed off. I ended up writing about it for one of my writing classes years ago, because it was just so fascinating. Like, who is this person? And then years later, I was like, huh, that's like positive confidence. You know, she's not defining herself by this, but she definitely feels good about what she's been through or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting for us because everyone is very different in their approach about that. So I'm sure how we approach people too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So your job is focused on taking care of other people. And I know that you have a husband and two kids at home. How do you balance your job and your family? (laughs) Well, that's like a work in progress always. Um, So no, it's hard. Um, Yeah, I think the nature of our field here, you know, is that people always say to me like, oh, just, you know, I'm sure you can just escape for a couple of weeks and totally turn off. But it's hard. I mean, a lot of our patients live in areas where maybe the access to care is not perfect. And, you know, they go to the doctor and, you know, the doctor's never heard of Job's syndrome. So it's really hard to totally say, okay, I'm taking, you know, a few weeks off from doing this. You feel Um, responsible. Yeah, you feel really responsible. So I think that's hard. I mean, luckily, I have a good team and we all try to help, you know, cover for each other some too. Have you done that though? Have you taken a few weeks off before? I mean, I've taken, I've gone away for a week in which, you know, I'm really focused on my own family. And, um, you know, I do always kind of check in, you know, like once a day or something. But I mean, there's trips I've done where I'm more or less trying to really not, you know, to really take a break because it is hard. You know, you don't want to get yourself totally burned out because, you know, there are a lot of doubt. You know, there's just hard periods where people aren't doing well or, if you lose a patient, I mean, that's really, really hard. So yeah, so I do try to give myself some breaks like that. And um, I do need to focus on my own family some as well. Luckily, you know, I have a very supportive husband and family. Um, You know, one of the reasons I moved to the DC area was because this is where I'm from. My mom is here. Uh, My dad was here a few years ago. So they were able to help me with my kids as well. And that's been great for my kids and my mom that, you know, that they then have a great relationship as well. Um, So that was one thing that helped out. But, you know, when my kids were in kindergarten, I would do the volunteering at the school for reading group once a month. And, you know, I try to be involved with the different events and make it to soccer games or whatever, you know, I try my best to balance things. And how do you take time for you? Does that exist? Uh, that probably needs the most work. So I am in a book club. Um, so I do that. I walk my dog. You know, I have friends I often walk with on the weekends, you know, down by our canal and, you know, Potomac River and stuff. So, 
yeah, I mean, you know, the, the probably the time for myself is probably what suffers the most, but, um, but I try to at least do some. I'm working on it. A work in progress. <laughs> it's a work in progress. So where can people learn more about you and your team and the incredible work that you're doing down at the NIH? So the two kind of main aspects of my life at NIH, one is the hyper IgE syndrome protocol, which is listed on clinicaltrials.gov, um, that website, so the NIH website. Um, and we are very accessible here um, to, uh, you know, in terms of enrolling um, new patients. And our protocol, people are always like, oh, you're a big researcher at NIH or something. I'm like, well, not, I mean, my day-to-day existence is really being a regular doctor, but focus on one more disease, you know, focus on certain diseases. You know, really it's, we're trying to take care of people here with this disease and through taking care of people, we then learn a lot about the disease and learning about the rare diseases. You know, I always try to make this point with our residents and fellows. So not like, okay, you guys are spending so much time resource, you know, like one rare disease or whatever. But for us, you know, if we can understand, well, how does this genetic change in Job syndrome lead to staph infections or how does it lead to scoliosis? I mean, we're helping our cohort of patients, but we're also really helping a much bigger population that has these different aspects of the disease that aren't really well understood. So, um, so that's how we try to generalize it. Anyways. But you, you know what? You actually made a really good point that I want to bring up, which is people getting to you and getting enrolled. So can you talk a little bit about how that works? Because potentially there's someone that's listening to the podcast and either heard my story, Lucy's story, or listening to you here now that are going, wait, maybe me or my child have Job syndrome. How do they get into the protocol? Yeah. So, well, I'll say in general for NIH protocols, you know, because we see a lot of rare diseases and there might be people listening that have other rare diseases. Really, the website to go to to see if you have a disease that's studied here is clinicaltrials.gov. And then you can search using your disease or you can put in one of our names or you can put in, you know, that you want to be seen in Maryland, you know, at NIH, because that website also has NIH funded research that's happening around the world. Um, So that's that. And on that, there is um, our protocol for hyper IgE syndrome is listed and it has all the contacts and everything there. Perfect. Usually it's the mechanism is to contact our research coordinator. But right now, um, yeah, we're kind of, she had just recently um, retired. So we have, hopefully we'll know exactly who that person is soon. But I'm, I'm available in the meantime. Love it. So thank you so much for taking the time. I know this took some coordination and managing your team and your schedules and everything. So really, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Uh, about your experience. Thank you for doing this. It's such an important thing to have, you know, these resources for other people that might be having these types of diseases. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com, follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram, Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.